Hey, I'm Sean. And I'm Jesse. And, and we're, we're the, the DMs, DMs of, of Vancouver. Vancouver. We're two newish DMs who are still getting the hang of the whole DM thing. So we sit down with a friend every couple of weeks and pick their brain on their approach to DMing. So come along as we figure out how to help our players have the best time possible at the gaming table. Today's episode is brought to you by Adventure Dice. Adventure Dice is an online dice shop based here in Vancouver, selling a variety of dice and other gaming accessories. Personally, I'm a big fan of their rolling trays and the grounded pixie dice set. Adventure Dice ships for free anywhere in Canada, and if you use the code DMV at checkout, you can get a 10% discount on your purchase. That's DMV for a nice discount on your new tabletop gear. Find the shop at adventuredice.ca and roll for adventure! Hey folks, welcome to another episode of DMs of Vancouver. Today we're going to be talking about adapting a D&D campaign into a comic. Today we're joined by Milo Applejohn. How's it going, Milo? Hey, you know, it's going quarantine times. <laughs> Lots of time to draw. <laughs> that's, that's, that's one good thing, I guess. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Milo, you've, you've been on the show before, but give our, our uh, listeners a refresher. Where might they know you from? So I'm Milo Applejohn. Um, my first graphic novel was called Fox on the Table, Broken Sun, and it was uh, a comedy. My follow-up to Broken Sun is called The Princess and the Plague King, which is a little awkwardly named given the current situation. Um, and it is a horror book. Um, I've also done horror comic Nothing Gold and under a previous alias worked on the Austera Tarot as well as another comic called Amplify Her. All right. And so uh, I guess full disclosure going into this, I am one of the players in Princess and the Plague Queen. I play Velocity, who is... (laughs) Did I say queen? You did. (laughs) Ah, sorry about that. Princess and the Plague King. I don't know why. I think it's because there's princess in my mind. It's just like, obviously, queen is the next thing. Oh, no, it broke. First off, what led you to start adapting your D&D campaigns into comics? Uh, I just love comics a lot is a really big part of it. Um, And when you're creating a setting as a DM, I'm a really visual thinker. So I'm sitting at a table like verbalizing something. Um, I get stressed out because I'm like, you can't see it. (laughs) Um, And and being an illustrator, I don't always love using other people's art to show what I'm talking about because it's not going to be like exactly right. so really a lot of it was just I wanted to like flesh out the campaign world further for my players, which is, I know, incredibly self-indulgent, but um, people love it. So uh, I mean, like outside of my players, I've, I've had a lot of success selling it. Uh, I was surprised initially that people wanted to read about um, my campaign that wasn't their campaign. But yeah, really, I just I just wanted to capture those like striking visual or comedic moments. Yeah, and like I gotta say, as a player, it is very satisfying to see moments from the game, like actually visually see them afterwards. And is honestly often a helpful tool when you're explaining uh, an NPC to us if you've made art of it later on. And it's like, yes, this is what Ophelia or Sydney looks like. Yeah, I try to do NPCs before I introduce them. It can't always happen. Um, but as you guys know, I love to to draw NPCs. The the other side of things is I do always worry because I know as players, you've got your own sort of like cinematic script that's happened for you. So when I'm drawing it, I'm like, I hope I got this right. <laughs> um, it's, I just want to say that it's interesting because like I have no artistic talent. So when I'm trying to find 
uh, art that I can use to show players like, oh, this is what this NPC looks like because I'm also not the greatest at describing things. So finding, like I go and find art and then we'll usually end up changing an NPC a little bit to match the art a little bit more. But also, yeah, that idea of, like when I'm describing something or I have an idea of like, this is what this room looks like and this is what this spell casting looks like. That's all in my head. And even if I could describe it to the best of my abilities, I know that the players are going to be seeing something different. And the idea of being able to put that down on paper to show them, I think that's incredible. And I'm really jealous. Oh, I, I appreciate that. Um, it's funny because I've also actually had some pushback from people against that, where they think that it uh, it somehow like tarnishes the experience, not from my players, but from other other people who play D anD D who who think that um because they I guess they enjoy having their own personalized experience. That when I I go and I paint a location and present it to them, it, it takes a little bit of the magic away for them. I think because because it takes away their creative input. Maybe I can I can see that, but at the same time. I guess for myself, I would say that if I was playing in a game and a DM or another player did some art or any kind of visual storytelling to go along with the campaign, I don't think it would ruin the way that I think of my character or what's happened. I mean, I guess because for myself, I'm not I'm not a visual thinker so much. So have like somebody even saying like here is some art of what this area looks like or what this character looks like i always find that incredibly useful so i guess i just don't understand where those people who thinks it's bad are coming from it could just be like a, an aphantasia versus having a rich imagination situation like if they have their own rich imagination um like visually like because i know some people are like it sounds like you're a less visual thinker um they 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 live there right they live in those spaces they create for themselves like i i can understand a little bit because i've played in campaigns with other artists and when they create art that i'm like oh it doesn't doesn't quite line up to what i'm imagining and i have to i mean it's fine it's i still really enjoy it but i have to kind of like go back and and rework what i was imagining (laughs) (laughs) i also think it's kind of a it's a weird thing for somebody who is not playing in your game to push back on you for making art based on your game. Oh, I don't think it was uh, like, I don't think they were angry or anything. I think they just uh, wanted to bring up the discourse of like, well, maybe some people wouldn't like that, which is, which is valid. And I, as a result, I now ask like, are you okay with me drawing your character? Can I draw your character Uh, more? I hope. Um, And with scenes as well. Like I wanted to make sure that I pass my script by my players so that they're like, I don't want that scene. And then I'm not, gonna do that to them or i think you've put my character in a bad light um because that's always that's the other terror right Haley, who plays in this campaign is alhenna is also a amazing artist <laughs> and i'm always like very <laughs> nervous that i'm drawing alhenna wrong <laughs> because i know she's got that like perfect visual image of her and she did the uh the original design with like such a sweet perfect face and i'm like always trying to get that face <laughs> <laughs> I've actually, I noticed that looking through that, like, there are some moments where it's, like, very striking that it's like, oh, that is, like, right on for Haley's kind of, at least the energy kind of of Haley's design. I'm glad. I'm glad to hear that because I, I put a lot of love into Alhenna. Um, it's always trying to capture that uh, that energy. It's exactly what it's about. Like, less than the aesthetic and more about the expression. Yeah. Like when I, I always put way too much time into designing the costumes. And then of course the costumes just start to lose detail as the comic progresses. <laughs> Cause I, I don't want you to focus on, uh, you know, the, 
three grommets on the shoulder. I want you to focus on the face that's happening. (laughs) Something that I'm curious about is like, you're talking about detail. And so that makes me wonder, like, I know that I've scaled back city maps and like battle maps and stuff like that, just because I have too many other things to deal with, like in the game and outside of the game. I don't have infinite time when you're designing a an encounter or uh like a location is there much like push and pull between like how much detail you want there to be when you describe it to the players and how much you want to keep for just drawing later or like what kind of trade-offs do you make so that you know if they go to some elaborate castle you're not drawing tons of tiny little details see i love to draw tiny little details that is what (laughs) i'm about um i would say it's actually the other way around whereas when i initially design the location i start to lose detail um both in in actually painting it and in describing it um but I, i definitely want that like rich visual experience at the table as well but I mean, sometimes it can be a problem in that like my memory isn't 100%. So I'll start describing details that aren't necessarily important. And because they aren't important, I might describe them a little bit differently later. And someone might be like, I thought that was blue. And I'm like, oh, it probably was. <laughs> <laughs> so um, now we've talked about, about the book a bit I, and about some of the process you already use. I'm kind of wondering about how you go about making your decisions on how to actually adapt the campaign. Because it's because this is a an adaptation, right? It's not a one-for-one yes. one everything exactly. Um, I mean, if I recorded sessions, then it would probably be a lot more exact. Um, but the other thing is, is I do have like a formal education as a storyteller. So when I'm shaving bits off, I'm generally using a rubric that I, I've taken from there as far as like plots and um, what to shave out and what to keep, like to get those arcs sort of like neat and tidy. Um, of course, I'm such a sucker for like moments that are humorous or have puns. Um, so they sneak in there. Um, and just moments that I because because I'm making this with a quite a time gap, it's over a year. Um, I, I have the advantage of knowing what's going to come up later, because sometimes you guys meet an NPC, have an initially like dramatic exchange, but then they never come back. So that that's something I would cut out because I'm looking for the moments that are going to echo forward in the story so that we get that really nice uh, storytelling experience for readers. Yeah. And I noticed that. And I I actually like as somebody who played from the start of this campaign and has read the book, I really appreciated how you cut a lot of stuff that was early, early on that wasn't really important for an overarching story, like characters who didn't come back, like you said, but also to uh, help us the audience get to know Jermaine who is played by a player who joined us later on kind of into the story like quicker. Yeah, that was, that was definitely important um, because of course with players arriving and leaving um, that can be a challenge in my first book. I started with seven players um, changed over more than half of them had several of them changed characters. So the whole thing is just a mess. <laughs> There's just characters arriving and leaving, arriving and leaving. Whereas this campaign, because I started this with a year of play, I knew who was sticking around. I knew who was going to have like those important, uh, important plot moments. Yeah. And so do you mind if I, I peel back the curtain for like some of the stuff you had said to us while you were working on it? Yeah, please do. Um, so uh, as you mentioned, this is a horror book and, um, a big part of the early parts of this story 
that you do see in the book is like a visual of like fleshy, terrible walls. <laughs> yep. Um, and you told us at one point that you actually had kind of grossed yourself out a little bit drawing the kind of initial one where Germain finds himself in this place. Um, how do you like? How do you deal with drawing some stuff that is occasionally quite disturbing? It's funny because when I was young, it didn't bother me at all. But I don't know something about being older or having kids or something. I'm like, oh, germs! I don't know inside of bodies. <laughs> it's gross. Um, yeah, but visually describing it, I think because I'm looking to upset you guys a little bit and I'm looking for your reaction, I'm not as affected myself. Whereas when I'm drawing it, I'm the only one interacting it with right now. Plus, drawing requires reference. Um, ah, yeah. <laughs> which can be a little... I mean, I'm a biology student, so I'm trying to get thicker skin anyway. Um, but I figured if I'm getting creeped out, that's probably a really good sign. I'm hoping that means that other people are getting creeped out. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was also wondering if there's anything that you kind of wanted to get in this book that you realized wouldn't make it in just from kind of giving it more of a structure. Oh man. So this book, I, I I wish that I could have predicted a pandemic, but I am not an epidemiologist, so it didn't happen. Um, there was initially a solid another like 15, even 20 pages of script on the end where I, I sort of had it go. I had some extra scenes, but because I had a big convention that of course didn't happen <laughs> coming up, I definitely shaved it down. I would have loved to have, uh, have it return to where it began plot wise. Like, because they, they started this inn called Abel's Rest, and I would have loved to see the story like come back to Abel's Rest again. Um, but I mean, that's not off the table, because I am an indie press, so I can just make it bigger later <laughs> and reprint that's it. That's true. Um, which I haven't decided if so, I'm going to do that. Something that I'm curious about, because we've been talking about um, like managing the story and cutting out the, the, the less important bits, mm-hmm. um, or the bits that don't fit in with the story that happens later on down the road, like you're saying NPCs that only show up once and, and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have a, a process or what is it like taking what the players have done as, because I, one of the things that DMs I think always struggle with is how to tell, how to keep a campaign moving forward, despite what players might do. And like, for example, something that I've done when I run a uh, a pre-written module is I make the players very aware that there are kind of rails to this story. Like, they have a lot of freedom within the story, but, you know, if they decide to go and visit a whole different continent, then it's no longer this module and I'm now homebrewing and I'd rather not do that. Do you have any guardrails in place for the players for the story that you want to try and get told? Well, how I approach it is I I generally take what I would call like a Skyrim approach where I, I write several plot lines at any given time. I sort of populate the world so that they will eventually choose one of those plot lines. Um, I'm also very blessed in that my players are incredible and interested in my storytelling and will generally bite. Um, but yeah, I haven't I haven't really had too much trouble with that. I've been really fortunate, I think, um, in that they just always they they want to they want to take the quest from the quest giver. They want to actually do the quest, <laughs> um, and it doesn't it definitely doesn't pan out how I planned it. I'd say seventy five percent of the time. But that's that's the joy of collaboration. That's that's what makes the graphic novel like that much more exciting to to create. Is because I'm not just telling my story. I'm telling a story that's been written as a group. And as a as a follow up, is how do you 
keep track of what's happened so that you can remember it. Because like I have an idea of a vague idea at this point of stuff that's happened in a campaign that I ran, I think, a year or more ago at this point. But if you ask me for details to like sit down and write a story about that campaign, I don't think I could do it at this point. So what what do you do to keep the details of what happened fresh in your mind? Or I guess how long between a, can, uh, a session and a writing session like for the, the script for the comic? So it is about a year, as you say. And that's probably one of the reasons it's very much an adaption rather than or adaptation rather than um, a straight telling. Um, I do leave notes for myself. Um, and also sometimes players will take notes. Unfortunately, my notes often make absolutely no sense. I have one that just says, uh, jock velocity shot put brine. So I don't <laughs> think what I put in was what actually happened, but it was close enough. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it's definitely a little bit of a problem and I should be either recording it or taking better notes. But I think because the story does tend to like resolve so cleanly, um, sort of what has happened reflects on what, happened previously like where we're at now because the campaign is still running can't wouldn't have occurred without what happened a year ago a year ago occurring yeah the um the campaign itself has a given that it is a dnd game and you have four players even with us being like pretty good about just following the storyline it is remarkably cohesive plot wise like the plot we just go <laughs> I'm really glad to hear that because I work really hard to make that uh, happen. <laughs> um, I'd say where what you guys get is probably about 60% of what I've written. And then a, about 50% of that makes it into the book. So the amount of uh, like back back work that happens is, is, uh, is pretty enormous to make that happen. Because like I said, I, I will essentially write out the world so that almost any direction you go will curb you back to a plot, even if it's not how I imagined you would get there. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I can I can feel that when we play because like we it feels like we have choice. Oh, you definitely the time. do. You definitely uh, but, have choice. Yeah, but it always also feels like that we are ending up exactly where we're supposed to be, which is a night it's like it's a very hard balance to get as a DM and uh, so kudos on that. Thank you. I mean, I can I can detail like how I do that if you want. <laughs> um, cuz I do have yes. a process. Um, so essentially what I do when I'm trying to get everyone in one place is I will look at every individual character's yeah. current motivations. Um, and I will essentially write each character or because there's a couple Velocity and Alhenna, sometimes they're, they end up with a like double plot. Um, so I will make sure that all of the threads of those individual plot lines will all come back to the same place um, so that it doesn't matter which they want to pursue. Because I mean, it's easy to predict that they're going to want to pursue a plot line that's like personal to them. Um, so as long as everyone has an option to do that, um, and some players take it more than others, it, it, it generally gets me where I want to go. Yeah. And you're, you're also very good at like, um, right now, like spoilers for way in the future, the, the plot for a while has felt like it's focused a bit on Jermaine because of a bunch of stuff that's going on, but it's also just in the way you're structuring it. And some of the surprises we've found is like, it's drawing everybody back in. It's really really well done i appreciate that um how, how it was initially set up was the first arc with the lycanthropy was meant to be um like velocity and alhenna's arc and then the second arc in shame or die was supposed to be more like jermaine's arc and now we've actually rolled into brian's arc <laughs> so, yes i've um, i've noticed that happening and i'm um, very happy 
I'm, I'm very excited about it. But everyone will always have like plots. Like I would never just neglect, or at least I try very hard not to neglect players out of the plot. I want to make sure everybody has a reason to be personally invested um, and try and figure out what makes players tick that gets them invested. Because of course, it's a little different for everybody. Well, and what's so uh, good about that approach is that when you get around to adapting it, it also means that like there are reasons for all of the characters to be there. You never have a character who just kind of feels like he's just floating around. Absolutely. So something that I'm I'm curious about, and you're talking about like adapting a D&D campaign into a story, and this is admittedly kind of a minor detail, but I'm just curious how you handle what happens when the players level up their characters? Like when a wizard learns some new spells or a fighter learns a new fighting technique, how do you handle that in the story? Or is it kind of just like you don't get into any of those details? It's really just the story. And it's kind of assumed that the wizard always knew the spell. He just hasn't cast it until now kind of stuff. Um, well, so I kind of actually approach that from the other end, and I tend to approach that in-game, knowing that I'm going to adapt it later, which is something I'm sure, Jesse, you've seen happen, where I, I want a plot reason for you to acquire a skill rather than just, um, like, an experience reason. Um, so I tend to favor that kind of approach. Um, I mean, definitely uh, we have, like, wizards casting Fireball without an explanation that this is how they previously learned that. But... Um, yeah, I certainly want those story moments of like people upgrading or like acquiring new items that are sort of integral to the plots. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't really approach it like when they level up so much. Well, I get to choose when they level up, so that helps. I don't do it by like just numbers. <laughs> um, so yeah, I just try and make sure it's at like a tidy story moment. So like when they're leaving one place to another place, and costume changes is another really great way to be like leveled up. We do a lot of costume changes. <laughs> <laughs> yes the costume changes are delightful they're one of my favorite parts i'm so glad to hear that i wish i could draw them all that's the only thing about the costume changes is i'm so behind and i want to draw everybody's costumes <laughs> um but i mean they got to be like a rock band for a while that was pretty wonderful um i definitely have a difficult time keeping it uh like horror themed in the beginning i think it was a little clear we had like some injuries resulting in some new abilities um it's a little it's a little lighter now and it's it's more about those deaths yeah um so uh, i wanted to talk a bit about setting because the game you're running for us is is eberron mm -hmm. or is largely inspired by eberron but uh i mean for obvious reasons you kind of had to change that for the adaptation so what was the kind of process for that well, I, I use Eberron like extremely loosely. Like when I wrote the campaign and when I'm writing, I'm writing from my own ideas and then I'm essentially back checking to see what I can pin it to. <laughs> um, uh, renaming things is probably the, the, the biggest challenge um, because that's mostly what I'm using from Eberron is, is names more than anything else and occasionally like geographical distances. But I'd say as, as far as like the lore, I, I, I tend to venture very far away. So it makes it easy to make it uh, different enough, I think. At least I hope so. Yeah. Well, it's it's almost kind of a surprise to me because I don't know a ton about Eberron or I didn't know a ton about Eberron until I got my hands on the book relatively recently. So like you could have told me that like, oh, yeah, this is all in it. And I'd be like, OK, yeah, it makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I remember when the uh, Aranel elves came up, you were like, this has been happening the whole time. And I was like, guess so. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, but I mean, like, I like having that feedback from players as well. Like, if there's something that they are expecting to be there because of their experience with Eberron, like, I will try and bend to that to provide that for them. Um, because it gives them sort of anchor points. Because it's, I think it's very intimidating from a player when you have an entirely homebrew setting. Because it's very difficult for you to know about where your background fits into everything. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's kind of what I use the Eberron. Just the, it's just little hints of Eberron to, to ground to ground you guys. Yeah. Um, hmm. I can't think of a question, Sean. <laughs> oh, now that you said that, my mind is blanking. Oh, no. <laughs> well, let me, since you have both read it, um, did did the horror come through? Because I, I always feel very nervous about horror. I love it. It's my favorite genre. But when you're making horror about people you know, it gets a little uncomfortable sometimes. And I always, both in play and in the book, worry that I like pull back from it too much or I push too hard. Like, I, I don't know. What, what has been your experience of the horror aspect? Uh, so uh, just to clarify, Sean has not had the opportunity to read it yet due to oh, quarantine. But um, for me, uh, yes, like especially the I wish I could show Sean this without it looking very terrible on the camera. Um, but especially like the bits where we kind of get into uh, the terrible things that are going to be happening in presumably kind of the next installment of this book, if you have an opportunity to do it right. Because you kind of got to the point right before it, like, really got very frightening. Yes, and I'm very excited to make it frightening, um, for sure. There's, yeah, it's it's definitely going to get more dark. But uh, after a year of dark, I think we were ready for light. But of course, because I, I, I tend to go that way. I don't know. It's, it's, it's a difficult one when you're working collaboratively, but you're, like, working in horror. <laughs> but I mean, that's what, that's what, like, a lot of communication and consent stuff is about. Exactly. So I actually do, I thought of a question. Um, so I'm curious, because I haven't read it, is there, is the entire thing from the viewpoint of the party or do you ever, uh, after the fact, like when you're writing out the script and when you're drawing everything, do you cut away to other perspectives? Like, do you cut to the villain talking to their henchmen about like some piece of the plan that the heroes have just interrupted or, or is it entirely from the party's perspective? I absolutely do the cutaways. It's probably the most self-indulgent thing about being able to make this because it also leaves Easter eggs for the players when they read it um, because they've played this. So I'm not worried about spoiling it, but they get to see sort of like a more uh, thorough view of what's happening. I actually, I hired this wonderful horror author, Adam Ma, to help me um, flesh out the story uh, by having a short story that's just about NPCs in the beginning. Um, and yeah, I absolutely have those cuts in both the comedy and the uh, horror where we're, we're seeing scenes that didn't happen at the table and don't always include player characters. And it's, okay, cool. it's been really effective too, because you also use that function to... Um, put Jermaine in the story a bit more before the party comes upon him. Yeah. Um, I, I definitely will do like, uh, I, if, if I have the opportunity to, of course, like with school and everything, it gets, uh, it gets complicated, but I plan to finish like the whole entire graphic novel. And then I, I definitely want to include those cuts for other characters as well, because we have lots of moments in the campaign that sort of like reference history. And it's, it's kind of another delightful departure is to go into a character's history. Like it didn't get played at the table and it involves NPCs that maybe never even made it into the campaign. Um, but just also to give that world like a much, um, again, that, that anchor of being like an existing world rather than just a campaign that's being run through. Cool. Yeah. Um, I'm going to leaf through this really quick to see if I have any more questions that occur to me. Oh, right. Actually, uh, you talked about having Adam Ma 
come in and write the short story. Mm-hmm. Um, Adam Ma, who is a person I want to eventually get on the show. I just need to set that up with him. Um, what was that like, uh, handing off part of the creative process to somebody else who wasn't like exposed to the game the same way that your players were? So a little background with Adam is he's one of my best friends. So he actually does have some knowledge of the campaign because okay. I bounce ideas off him. Um, I loved it. I thought it was really a really great opportunity to bring like just a new voice and a new flavor because he does monster horror and I generally don't do monster horror like the campaign has a lot more like body horror and like psychological stuff but I mean it's a fantasy game it's a D&D campaign we have to have like scary werewolves <laughs> um no I was I was really really thrilled with that whole experience I uh I was happy with his uh, characterization of the characters he wrote and of course so happy with the monster <laughs> and the the short story at the beginning is also sets the tone for the book really well i found i'm so glad yeah. i i think he knocked it out of the park i was shrieking at my monitor when i was reading it i was so happy <laughs> um i think he put a lot of care um, and it also, because uh, one of the problems I, I encounter DMing sometimes is uh, questions about motives that come up at the table. So I always want to make sure that I know my NPC's motives because um, as things sort of like start to unfurl unnaturally, it's very important to like stick to that because I definitely have players who will be like, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> so I, I have to be 100% locked down on knowing their history. Like I essentially... Every NPC you ever meet will have some rudimentary backstory. Um, even if you meet them for 15 seconds, um, just in case you decide to interact with them in a bigger way so that uh, that happens. And, and of course, the characters in uh, that are in the short story, um, uh, Little Crow and the Doctor, um, are like really integral, but they never had an opportunity to sort of explain themselves. Um, they're always sort of like ushering the plot along. So I was really pleased to have the opportunity to like get a little look at their life before the party happened. Yeah, that's a thing I'm really looking forward to seeing as you have the opportunity to do more of these is like some more things about some of the other like other characters. Like I'm very interested in Sydney's background and well, stuff like that. You know that the first graphic novel is about Sydney. Uh Oh, is it? It's been a while since I've read the first yeah, one. Yeah, she's. Uh, I mean, she's a very different character, but it's at. It's, I, I will let you know, is they are canon to each other. <laughs> All right. Um, so yeah, we will, Sydney is an interesting character because, um, yeah, she's like too precious to me. I had to get rid of her. I was like, you're too precious to me. You have to go for a little while. Um, because she, because she is a, from the previous campaign and I brought her in expecting her to be much more of a side character and you guys immediately latched onto her and I was like, oh no. <laughs> um, yeah, but it's, it's like, delightful. Yeah, and now we have one character in particular that's like very concerned with Sydney. Oh <laughs> man, that's the worst. Okay. Oh man. Okay. So yeah, I guess there's there is like an opportunity for romance, which I love from a writer's perspective, but I do not love from the table perspective. <laughs> yeah, hard um, hard same when it, when I'm DMing. <laughs> yeah, I'm like I want to draw this later, and it could be so cute and lovely, but also like. I just find romance at the table super uncomfortable. And I'm not actually 100% sure that's what's going on also. I probably should just talk to that player and be like, do you want to have a romance with this character? But it just, it it's a strange experience. It's not one I've really encountered before. 
Um, but for the book, I definitely want it. I'm like, it would be so good. <laughs> I'm like, I don't, I don't want to play table kissing, but I definitely want like a, a, I'm just, I love those Victorian romances that are terrible always like the tragic, like, and that's exactly what this is. Like <laughs> has the potential to be, um, the, you know, the, the Gothic, the Gothic, uh, s- sort of, sorry, I just completely lost my train of thought. Um, yeah, no, um, and definitely we will be learning more about Sid either way, whether that happens or not, um, because a lot of that is in the missing space between the books, and I intend to use that as the bridge between the books. Yeah, um, and of course I'm also interested in the, and we, we did get quite a bit of him in the campaign, but the kind of maybe seeing more detail about Silvano, who is who we thought was our antagonist for most of it and is maybe we're not sure still i'll be honest with you silvano was never meant to be your antagonist but you i just rolled with it because it (laughs) it worked for me and i mean silvano as a character like has problems he was never meant to be a protagonist so that was completely fine it was more i guess it was more a neutral like quest giving ground but then with how the plot lines ended up unfurling i thought it went beautifully having and and i love an antagonist who isn't just like i'm evil so i i liked that the original plan for the antagonist ended up being like much secondary to silvano yeah <laughs> silvano it's literally yeah. like a shake our fist at the sky while yelling his name villain or like villain at least to the party <laughs> i was i was actually thinking that um when i have like the second issue completed i will probably hire adam again but that's what we will work on is like more to do with silvano and his history. Um, also, his history is like a little yucky. So like there's definitely parts I want to avoid. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, again, writing that like uh, Victorian Gothic. So there are like some some themes about incest and um, abuse that are, you know, sort of par for the course for the genre. But when I'm hinting at them as a background story, it's a little bit different than like actually transcribing them. Um, so when, when I get there, I'll have to think about how I'm going to deliver that information. Um, it definitely won't be graphically. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, that's one thing I can say I was great. I'm been grateful for is that we didn't get a lot of, uh, Silvano and Ophelia like together. No. And then that you never were going to, cause it, like, I wanted to be like, it's a problem. <laughs> yeah. Not because sometimes I find, um, that genre does treat those kind of plot lines, like a little more laissez-faire than I wish they would. Um, and, and with horror, like I want those like deeply disturbing aspects. Like I don't want to wimp out because I am trying to create like a horror story specifically in that genre. But, um, yeah, I'm not, it's, it's never going to be treated like salaciously. Good. Thank you. (laughs) I, I guess like, are you pleased with velocity? Because it is so important to me that velocity has the right energy because you play her with such a verb. And I'm just, I'm really hoping that she has like the right kind of punk energy yes oh i i love the and like i've told you this before about the initial you have her pretty early in the book as like a a side kind of page yeah like on the second page across from uh the little crow and the doctor cover page uh and i just i love the design and like how big and like tall and like scary looking she is that's that's how i imagine her (laughs) Yeah. Well, and like, I like, I like that one of the things I like about Velocity and I like about character descriptions in general is when a character looks scary and is just like, oh, no, I'm very friendly. (laughs) I'm just also very dangerous. 
Sorry, I'm just quickly going to text my partner to get Kiki out of here because I can. you can probably hear her banging on the door. I don't know. Can you hear her? Uh, uh, no, I have not been able to hear her at all. Okay, that's good. I was worried that it was going to interrupt you there. Um, yeah, I'm really pleased. And like one of the other things about drawing your guys' characters is I, I don't want to make them like fan service-y. Um, and hopefully that is the correct approach for you as well, just because like... I mean, they're they're yeah. not my creations. They're something I'm trying to respect. <laughs> yeah, and and like I'm glad you went that route at least with the velocity. I think I would have been like not happy if it was like very fan servicey. I'm thinking when I think of fan servicey, I think of like anime fan servicey, which is that, like that's what I mean. Yeah, yeah, um, because she is fairly uh, like fairly androgynous in a lot of ways. She's kind of long and thin and and like muscular, but like she's not necessarily uh sexy in the way that a lot of fan service stuff likes to kind of apply to those kind of characters. Yeah, that's and that's also like being queer myself. Like I don't wanna be like making queer characters vanilla just for the sake of making them palatable. Like cause Velocity yeah. is awesome. She has an audience for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and like I I really enjoy how all of the characters are drawn in this book. The the only thing that like I think surprised me is like Jermaine looks like he has a tan, which is not how I envisioned him, but doesn't mean it's inaccurate. Sorry, who has a tan? Uh, like, oh, Jermaine. Uh, and that's mostly just compared to Brian, who is oh, that's... kind of drawn paler. Really? I mean, and that, that <laughs> might just be from the gradient. It really. And, like, I don't know what the. Oh, you know what it is? It's because I only really. in the dark for most of the comics. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. I'm used to Actually, just seeing him just... in shadows. Brian is definitely darker skinned than Jermaine because um, he's like ruddy. He's a fire genesi, so he's like red. But you know what it is? It's that uh, you guys are often out in the sunlight, but for this almost entire issue, Jermaine is underground. Ah, that makes sense. And now, now I like, have to make that more clear. Um, whoops. <laughs> ah. oh, well, it's also like, I feel like that's the thing that happens with black and, and white or like in grayscale as the color palette, right? You Sometimes those things aren't clear because you can't, see that somebody has red skin mm -hmm. for sure i mean and that's one of the reasons i i want to get more color art like i definitely want a uh, all of the party on the next cover just to be like this is what colors they are velocity is purple surprise because i don't think you know velocity is purple from uh this graphic <laughs> novel um, yeah uh i'm i'm excited to see that especially with uh jermaine like everybody all in their adventuring gear and then jermaine in his pajamas <laughs> Yeah, he he won't be in his pajamas. Oh, I guess yeah, I guess he's still got a, a, definitely a graphic novels worth of pajamas left. <laughs> <laughs> I still imagine Jermaine in his pajamas. I know he hasn't been in his pajamas for at least a year, but he's in his pajamas. <laughs> it does kind of feel like that all the time. <laughs> he's strolling around doing his important um, noble stuff, but you know, with a sleep cap. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think that brings us about to the end of our time. Um, Milo, if there was one piece of advice you could have given yourself before working on uh, The Princess and the Plague King about adapting it, uh, what would that have been? Don't go back to school. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> um, definitely to write down with a little more clarity what's going on. Because, I mean, it's I don't really have the time to is the problem because most of my notes are before what happened. So they do indicate what has happened previously, but they're, they're not in any way like a document of the session. And I've started doing sketches from the sessions, 
um, which I wish I'd started doing sooner because then I have like a visual moment that I know is important. Yeah, that sounds like great advice and that makes a lot of sense. Um, all right, so. Oh, where... I want to add one more thing, sorry. Oh yes, please. For other DMs who want to make comics, the single biggest piece of advice I can give you is just do it, it is good enough. I, I know a lot of people struggle to make that first panel but if you just, even if you just get your script one page long and draw it, you have a start. You just need to start and then it will happen. Yeah, that's also great advice. Um, where can people find you and the comic online? So I am Fox on the Table across all social media, um, which is because the Fox House is was the original plotline of the original book. Um, and uh, I believe foxonthetablecomic.com. But if you just Google Fox on the Table, it'll, uh, you'll find it. Um, I also have my other horror comic, Nothing Gold. But yeah, Fox on the Table will get you to me. Cool. Um, and can people buy copies of the newest book on foxonthetable.com or through there? Uh, you can if you... It, it is on Store Envy, um, which there will be links to on all of those social media unfortunately with mailing and such right now i think it's a little difficult i I take it down um but you can read it on my patreon um which is also fox on the table and it is released uh once a week um but as far as buying the hard copy book uh get it at a con (laughs) (laughs) cool well thank you so much for coming on this has been a blast i love hearing about the cool art things that people do with their with their D and D campaigns, and uh, doing a whole comic is definitely not something I could ever accomplish. But I I am flabbergasted by what you've been able to do. So uh, big kudos to you. Uh, really impressive. Yeah. Thank you so much. That's so kind yeah. of you to say. Thank you for having me again. Yeah. Thank you for coming on, and thank you for being a wonderful DM. Oh, thank you for being a great player. <laughs> <laughs> You guys have been honestly so wonderful. Like I, I can talk about this stuff and my storytelling process, but I've been incredibly jaded and that my players are interested and supportive, which not all players are. So if you're a DM listening and you're like, my players aren't that engaged. It's, it's both. It has to be on both sides. Like have that conversation. Don't all put it on yourself. Actually talk to your players about why they're not engaged. <laughs> For sure. And bye. Yeah. With that, thanks everyone for listening. Have a great day. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to DMs of Vancouver. We acknowledge that the land we live, work, and play on is the unceded territory of the Coast Salish peoples, including the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. In recognition of that fact, we ask that you please support Raven, a charity that helps support Indigenous people throughout Canada. You can find them at raventrust.com. We are a part of the Cave Goblin Network. To check out other shows on the network, please visit cavegoblins.com. You can support the show and the network by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash cavegoblins. You can also support the show by leaving us a review on iTunes or talking about the show. You can find us on Twitter at DMs of Vancouver, at Jesse Boros, and at Sean P. Hagen. Our art is done by the wonderful Haley Boros. See more of her work at haleyboros.com. Our theme music is Overworld by Kevin McLeod. Find his work at acompetech.com. Hey, my name is Eric. I'm Piers. And this is Podcast vs. Podcast. You're listening to us here on the Cave Goblin Network. We take turns pitching podcasts to each other. We're trying to find a good podcast to do because we don't have any ideas. So turn off whatever show you're listening to. Turn on our show. I was told that once the earth was shaped like a dish. This was a time before mortals or the law. 
That time has long since passed, and no one tells those stories anymore. All they care to tell these days, over and over again, are the tales of Frost Cricket. Hear them all on the Cave Goblin Network. This is a Cave Goblin podcast. For other podcasts like this, visit cavegoblins.com. We hope you have enjoyed this program.